Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the position of the society. Speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. For a limited time, AMDA's new pocket guide, Parkinson's Disease and Psychosis in the Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Setting, is free when you download the AMDA app. The pocket guide highlights key information needed to recognize, assess, treat, and monitor people with Parkinson's disease in the PALTC setting. It also includes a special focus on Parkinson's disease psychosis. Download the AMDA app to access the new pocket guide today. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Good afternoon, everyone. It is the top of the hour, and we are going to start the Florida Medical Directors Journal Club, and we're presenting what's then, what's now, and what's up. And as you could tell from the title, I am all out of catchy titles. There's no more. <laughs> so we're going to start with the, our agenda um, we, we want to review our state of the state, and then we're going to look at some clinical trends and updates and hopefully um, lead it to a discussion about what's up with our um, post-acute long-term care infrastructure. So just to start, I um, wanted to just provide an overview of where we're at with the numbers. We are currently seeing um you know pockets of of high cases and high hospitalizations across the country our um, positivity rate over the past seven days was 8.5 um two percent and um the concern from many people if you you're watching um, updates or listening to um different podcasts and different um, news channels the concern is that when you look at what, what's been happening over the past 28 days, um, the new cases over 2.7 million, that really does equate to being a high percentage of people every day testing positive. So that's where the biggest concern is. Um, we are looking at Florida, you know, our numbers have um, gotten so much better since our last, um, uh, hopefully, um, knocking on wood, our last wave, but where we're at currently um, um, through last week, we saw uh, uh, our new positivity rate of 3.8%. So we're lower than um, 4%, which is really great news. Um, the trend for the state of Florida has been to see less hospitalizations in our area. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that in a few slides. I definitely wanted to highlight what we're seeing with vaccinations. Um, we are seeing that we have more, a higher percentage of um, individuals getting that first shot. Um, when I ran this number, I believe we were at um, 57.1% when I when I pulled this slide, but um, now technically at 58%. When you look at 
and that's for fully vaccinated. When you look at um, the total population for fully vaccinated, um, I believe as of um, a week and a half ago, we started outpacing for booster shots, those um, first initial shots. So there is um, that's something to watch out for. Um, the majority of individuals who are getting the boosters are in that 65 years or older um, age range. And um, we're going to talk about some information that came out with the NIH a little bit later, too. So want to hit the then and the now and look at some of the clinical trends. And um, this is from the CDC. And this takes all the data that we've seen um, from the states from March of 2020, March 14th, when the pandemic was declared to um, about a week ago. And, you know, I think um, as we are all living this, we probably um, are very acutely aware of the surges and the waves that we've seen. So where we're at right now, we're on that downward, downward slope of the, the summer surge, as you would call it. So we are, we are seeing some good signs. And when you look at the last seven days, that's where it gets a little bit, uh, the story gets a little bit more um, full. So we are still seeing, even though the South has um, eased up a lot as far as new um, cases. And it is a wonderful thing to see um, Florida, especially South Florida, in more of that yellow range. What we're seeing is some of our, um, as we look at the Midwest and the Great Plains, we're in um, a lot of areas that have more rural um, areas. We're still seeing a lot of hot spots and a lot of new cases um, over the last um, seven days um, when this report was pulled. What that means is, um, if you look, that green line is the south. So we are coming down um, for those states who are in the south area. Um, so Florida, Georgia, um, parts of Alabama, we are the, the Carolinas. We're seeing a downward trajectory um, where um, some other um, areas of the country are still sort of um, staying at a higher level. So we really need to just um, keep that in mind and, and think about that when it comes to transmission and where we might um, have overutilized resources and, and um, places where, where there may need to be more um, help. Mm -hmm. This looks at the hospitalizations over the past seven days. And um, as you can see, Florida, um, um, the South region, we're, we're getting a lot better. But as I mentioned before, there are some real hot spots um, in those Great Plains states and, um, the, and as we go to the Northwest. This um, really breaks down um, how we are looking at mortality and um, deaths per 100,000. And in the beginning of this pandemic, you know, that's where we saw the sharpest numbers um, increase. We are still seeing um, higher rates than we would want to when it comes to mortality. Um, and if you look at that green line again, that is where we sit in the South and we are seeing, we're still seeing higher um, numbers than we want. When you break that down across the country, um, we're, I feel this, this uh, map really depicts how we are seeing um, the results of um, this last surge. So we're seeing still high numbers of mortality in the state of Florida and in a lot of those Southern states. 
Here we are looking at um, community transmission, and this is where it becomes concerning um, when we're looking at all of the trends um, that we're seeing throughout the country. And it's concerning because we still have high rates of transmission. Um, this breaks it down by county, county by county. And we're still seeing when you look a lot of transmission throughout the country. The, the South has gotten better, but it is still um, in a very high to um, substantial range um, across the majority of the country. We do see some areas where there are very low rates of transmission, um, a lot of pockets, um, depending on what county you're looking at. Why it is concerning is because when you look at everything in totality, the areas of concern where we are predicting that we're going to see more um, cases you know, we still have on this map too many of those sustained hotspots, which are the bright red. Those areas are what we're counting as sustained hotspots. So we see some in Florida, more on um, uh, on the West Coast, but we do have them throughout the country where we are seeing these areas where there's still a high burden, um, a moderate um, burden may be resolving, um, which is where most of um, Florida is, but there are still places where there are hotspots and sustained hotspots, which is the, the major concern. So I wanna shift from talking about some of the trends to really looking at where we're at with some of the um, information that has been coming up because we have had a lot of headlines since the last time we spoke. One is that um, we saw that Merrick um, released some information and um, actually sent some information over to the FDA about their new drug. And I may mispronounce this. So if there is a pharmacist on the line, you can correct me. I think it's Molnupravir. Um, and that this um, drug is for treatment with COVID and it did reduce the risk of hospitalization or death by approximately 50%. So, this information um, has been shared with the FDA. And when we're looking at where, where we're at with this, um, just so that we understand the mechanism of action, this drug is working, um, works by introducing, um, um, targeting the vi viral polymerase, an enzyme that ne is needed for that, the virus, the COVID virus to make copies of itself. And then it introduces errors into that genetic code. So um, there, there has been a lot of um, hopefulness around how um, this can impact the, the treatment course, not for any prophylaxis, prophylactic therapy, but this is for the treatment course. Um, and um, per Merrick, if you, the earlier this medication was given, the better um, um, results they saw. So this has all been submitted to the FDA um, for emergency use authorization, and we're waiting to hear about that. We're also um, watching Pfizer, who began um, a study of an oral medication for prevention of COVID-19. So it's interesting that um, Merrick came out, they're, they're trying to get theirs approved for treatment. Pfizer is thinking um, more uh, um, using the, the same, is the same mechanism of action, but they're trying to get an approval for um, that prophylactic um, type tr uh, of care. And um, just like I said, just with 
as with the Merrick's drug, this will target that viral polymerase to stop um, replication, um, creating errors in the, um, in the genetic code of that virus. So what was interesting, I think, in the last week and a half is um, the mix and match COVID vaccine boosters um, study that the NIH has been doing since um, um, late spring, early summer. I think um, a lot of I've had a lot of conversations about this in, in the um, leading up to these results um, being shared because, you know, it makes some logical sense that you might get a different response if you paired that with a different um, um, vaccination. So if you had Moderna and you received Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson and you received one of the mRNAs, would you have a different um, response? So the study really looked at um, people who were vaccinated with one of those three um, coronavirus shots in the United States, and um, they enrolled 450 people. So it was very small, which is where we've seen a lot of the criticism. But um, when looking at all of those, um, those individuals, they did find that um, with an additional dose of any of the three shots, there was a, um, a much higher immune response. So this is now, um, this has all been shared with the FDA in the, the conversation from just looking at what, what we're anticipating. Um, we do think that the FDA is going to allow the mix and match approach for COVID boosters. In all the cases, the additional dose did increase antibody levels against coronavirus. Um, they also um, show that for those who received JJ when they received the mRNA um, um, vac vaccine, they had a lower level of antibodies to begin with. And when they received the mRNA vaccine, they had a very um, robust response. So the FDA Advisory Committee, I believe they're meet meeting th this Thursday or Friday to discuss this. So we may get one of those late Friday um, decisions that um, have become sort of um, commonplace now. With, with the FDA. So I wanna shift our attention to really thinking about what's up with our um, post-acute long-term care infrastructure. Um, one of the biggest challenges that I think um, and opportunities that we have with this pandemic is to, has been to really assess the, the, what makes our industry great. Um, the challenges that we have and what we need to do to get in front of some uh, some of these things. Um, unfortunately, one of those challenges that we're I've, I've heard from people across the country that we're all experiencing is um, staffing shortages. So um, across our nursing homes and assisted living facilities, um, we're um, experiencing this um, um, staffing shortages. Um, there's a lot of complaints about um, the, the fear of um, some facilities needing to close down because of how, how difficult it is to find staff. And um, I've heard that more from medical directors who are in the rural areas. I don't know how we're, what we're seeing um, in some of our um, suburban and urban areas, but um, I, it feels like we, we've always talked about how do we um, boost up our, um, our staffing for many years in this pandemic has really um, been a stress test. It showed that we have um, some significant challenges. Um, there was an article in Fierce Healthcare 
that is explaining that um, a lot of long-term care facilities have been turning away admissions. Um, they're trying to hire agency workers, sometimes people who are not really familiar with the space to come in and it has become a great challenge. And um, I know that the Florida Healthcare Association did a survey and found that 92% of Florida nursing centers face staffing challenges. Um, when we looked at that, they surveyed about, I believe, 310 nursing homes and 23 assisted living facilities um, in the state of Florida. So we know it's a challenge. We know there's a problem. And one thing that we've been discussing on the COVID state task force with AMDA has been, um, you know, the, the burden of having um, some of these facilities now they're trying to compete with other facilities to get staff and we've seen um, a surge in, in compensation. Um, you know, it was very competitive right now. So this is hurting some of those um, smaller, more rural um, facilities. We've also um, seen a lot of competition between care settings. So I think that's one challenge. And then you layer, layer on top of it, um, some of the, the pushback from the vaccine mandates may be contributing to um, the staffing challenges that we're seeing. Um, we've been, I think, um, talking with different organizations. One um, organization, I believe we have a, um, we probably can push out a video that we we have of Lori Porter, who's with the CNA, the CEO for the CNA Association, who's been very passionate and um, speaking about this as a concern very eloquently for many months now. We have received guidance, um, finally, on um, nursing home and long-term care facility strike teams as part of that infrastructure um, um, to help us with our infrastructure so that we could have um, people come in to help with um, things around infection control and um, really um, um, helping with staffing. Like I said, I said finally, because the American Rescue Plan came out many months ago and there has been some challenges in understanding um, what we should be looking at for our space. There's also been um, some challenges um, as reported from many states on how to get access to that money. And if there's anyone who has had success with that on the call, I would welcome you to speak up. Um, we can save it for open discussion, but that is one thing that um, remains a challenge for many, um, for many states. There was a great article in the Journal of American Geriatric Society that talked about how to build community and resilience in nursing facilities. And this looked at one nursing facility in Massachusetts. And they the, 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 the takeaways from this is that they were having a lot of challenges with their frontline staff um, throughout this um, pandemic because of the stress of um, testing the high infection rates and mortality rates um, among um, residents and staff. And they um, were able to put together a 16-week virtual and interactive educational series on COVID-19 infection control that enabled the, um, the nursing home leadership to create a more supportive environment, um, a lot of peer-to-peer -peer learning, um, 
how to um, a lot of uh, coping skills and, and those type of conversations. And I thought it was just an interesting um, study and, and important to share. It came back, it was first published, I believe, back in July, but it is still resonated with me because of, of the fact that by sharing and, and really talking to each other and seeing what getting feedback from our staff, you can see how we can stand up something that could be very supportive with um, with the entire um, facility staff and really transformed this facility. There's also another article that caught my attention that came out um, at the end of September that was in the Journal of American Geriatric Society and it spoke to um, Medicare payment policies and skilled nursing facilities. Um, some of the lessons that we've been trying to learn um, for many years. Um, this really looked at um, Medicare payment policy and the impact, the historical impact that it has had. Um, it was something that you know I, I was able to to share when we were talking about um, power and privilege in one session um, last year. Well, earlier this year with AMDA. We looked at the healthcare lineup and where nursing facilities rank amongst um, um, community-based um, partners, home health um, companies, and the hospital, and how we are seeing that there is a, a, a lot, there is funding that is being redirected more to those home and community-based programs away from the um, nursing facility. So how do we address that when we're in, in such a challenging time? Um, so this study really looked at a framework, uh, um, looked at all the policies and highlighted some important, important um, lessons that we, we have seen. And it really goes through and gives a breakdown of where we were at in 1960 and how we're now in 2019, we saw the patient-driven um, um, patient payment models and what the impact um, has been on that, seeing that there's been declines in um, therapy staffing and um, you know higher overall fee-for-service reimbursement, but other challenges that the building may have. So it is interesting, and we're going to definitely share that study on our site, our on our website. And I wanted to just for a moment, um, think about where we're going, um, because like I, I've said many times before, the, if our infrastructure, thinking about how we grow and how we transform keeps me up at night. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting was an article out of JAMTA about recommendations to enhance telemedicine in nursing homes. And, um, you know, this was looking at the age of COVID, but it thinking beyond where, where will we land with this? You know, they looked at how do we improve connectivity? Um, how do we um, amplify the sound on these devices so that we can hear, should we have set a structured time to do telemedicine visits where the nurses in the facility are um, available. And I think as we um, come out the other end, whenever that is, as we're coming out the other end, we need to really think about how this will remain with us um, past this pandemic. Another interesting study that was in um, the Journal of American, it was more of an um, article in the Journal of American Medical Association at JAMA, um, was thinking about how COVID um, really pushed back on some things that we were, we were studying and researching and um, um, areas that took up maybe a lot of, um, a lot of our 
interest, you know, um, three such conditions, HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria. Uh, a lot of disruption was, uh, we've seen in the research and treatment um, protocols with these conditions. And the it was interesting because they, they mentioned how the Global Fund was founded 20 years ago, and we really had put so much investment in that. But now testing and treatment for TB has declined. Testing um, for HIV has um, declined, and and while we've seen um, the malaria vaccine come out, there's been a lot of um, you know a lot of pushback and a, a lack of understanding um, about why these things are important, and it really probably stems from the fact that we haven't been keeping our eye on it um, in the last few months of this pandemic. There's also um, was an interesting article about how what what what's going to happen with dementia care. We're now seeing more um, individuals um, with dementia. That may be something that is related to that long COVID. Which, if you're coming to our conference, we will talk about um, in exhaust at at um, our annual meeting. But the World Health Organization is also projecting that we're going to see a real sharp climb in the in projected number of people who, are be, who will be living with dementia. And this brings into um, the, the question of uh, family members who most typically are unpaid caregivers, most typically are women. And we've seen such a, um, um, the, the, the great, um, resignations, as as people are calling it, we see such a uh, a flux of people leaving the workforce. I don't know what that means as far as caregivers and availability. I will say that this is um, getting caregivers currently is challenging. So I don't even know how we we get in front of this so that we can start planning for this future over the next ten. And now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post Acute Care. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At US Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. And then I wanted to um, also highlight uh, something that we are seeing um, and that really caught um, the news um, in late September and early October. Um, there's been some studies about the current state of antipsychotic use in nursing homes. And um, one report mentioned that the fact that we are now seeing increased use of antipsychotics um, in our nursing home populations. Um, and I think we, we 
we were very aware that this could happen and we started seeing higher use of antipsychotics and anxiolytics um, back in 2020, um, as well as um, higher utilization of things such as like antibiotics. So in thinking about where we land at, you know, there, there's been a lot of talk about how people in nursing facilities are being over-medicated with these um, drugs. And I think that it, it feels to me like a call to action to get back in front of um, having those conversations about how do we reduce antipsychotic use, looking at where our buildings are in, in those um, in the um, psychotropic meetings and making sure that we are really aware of, of how we're utilizing these medications in our buildings. Um, I feel, I, I guess, and I'm probably very passionate about it because we've done so much work on it for so many years and some of the things, um, as with some other um, conditions, we've seen a lot of setbacks. So I, I'm really keeping an eye on what we're doing in this space and I wanted to share that um, if you are noticing that there might be some opportunities that your building has around reducing medications such as antipsychotics or even um, looking at how your antimicrobial stewardship programs are going. Remember that AMDA has the um, drive to deprescribe uh, initiative. Um, these, this is a series of webinars that are offered in office hours where you can speak with the work group um, to, to talk about strategies and resources that is available to um, the, your to all providers, your chains or facilities at no additional charge. So um, we are seeing a lot of people across the country utilize this. Um, th that article, uh, it was a series of articles about antipsychotics that I was reading between the New York Times and um, some other um, outlets that made me think, okay, maybe we should just remind everybody that we do have this so that we can get in front of those um, issues. I would just want to share that um, we will be doing our in-person annual conference November 4th through 7th, and I hope to see as many people there as possible. I'm really looking forward to uh, getting from behind my computer and seeing people in person. So, <laughs> um, you know, I don't know if anybody has no comments. Uh, Emily, I see you highlighted. I don't know if you have a comment or not. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody as well. I just, I really enjoy attending these. They are very informative. Thank you so much for continuing to host them. Thanks. I see someone's hand up. Thank you, Emily. Fred? Well, we look forward to seeing you guys. Dr. Kaplan, did you have anything to share? Um, Diane, I just wanted to mention, okay, in the way of clinical update studies that I thought had some impact perhaps in our setting, in our space, was the online um, recent article in JAMDA regarding the effect of antithrombotic therapy and clinical outcomes in outpatients with clinically stable symptoms of COVID. Typically, our population, the people we keep in our setting, and uh, the results of the study was, is that there was no conclusive evidence or consensus for use 
Uh, otherwise, if people obviously have other indications for antiplatelet or antithrombotic therapy, of course, they would be on those. But de nouveau, so to speak, there's actually uh, in this article no evidence uh, or consensus for initiating that therapy in a prophylactic uh, manner. Of course, therapeutics is a whole different story. Or even therapeutically for COVID in that setting. Um, in fact, they stopped the study, the study short after only 9% of the intended uh, amount of 7,000, 7, they stopped at around 650 or whatever, because there were no composite, not even enough composite outcomes of thrombotic events, et cetera. So, you know, many of us are in that setting. And again, we have the urge, I have to do something. I know all these patients who are going to the hospital are being anticoagulated, not only prophylactically, but many of them therapeutically. And um, what should I be doing in our setting? So just want to get that in. Oh, thank you. That's a great, that was a great um, article. I think there, there's a lot of great research um, coming out with JAMDA, some things that I'm looking forward to talking, and I didn't want to steal everyone's thunder because we're going to be talking about so many topics at our conference, but there is, there is um, a lot of good information, um, you know, just to shamelessly plug the conference one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club.